Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our cases this week are centered on two doctors accused of doing some really horrible things. A once respected neurologist has been convicted of sexually assaulting patients. Prosecutors say that the doctor created a system of abuse by over-prescribing addictive medications to his patients. And then he would deny them additional prescriptions or renewals unless they submitted to his sexual demands. After 15 years of abuse, the voices of his victims have finally been heard in a New York court. But first, a huge development this week in the case of a dentist accused of killing his wife on safari to collect over $4 million in insurance money and to be able to start a new life with his lover. The dentist has been found guilty of murdering his wife. He claimed that his wife accidentally shot herself during a hunting trip. Six years after the wife's death, a federal court has declared justice. We are recording this on Wednesday, August 3rd of 2022. Our guest today is Danny Smith, who is an author and a former LA County Sheriff's detective with over 20 years of experience on the force. He is also a prolific writer of detective novels, including the Dickie Floyd series and his personal story, which you can see there on the screen. And for those of you listening, nothing left to prove. Danny, welcome back. Thank you, Anna. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Good to have you back. Um, you know, Danny's a regular on the show and I met Danny on a homicide and I like to, it, it's hard to believe, but during the worst of times, you can meet some of the most amazing people. And that's what always inspires me and gives me hope, which is why I do these crime stories for the hope and the people. So let's get to our cases, Danny. Our first one has been the subject of international intrigue for years. A wealthy Pennsylvania dentist has been charged with killing his wife while on an African safari and a hunt. Well, he's now been convicted of murder. 67-year-old Dr. Lawrence Rudolph and his wife, Bianca, had been married for 34 years, Danny. The two were on this big hunting trip in Zambia in October of 2016. She died of a gunshot wound to the chest. Bianca and Lawrence were both in the cabin. The, the, the shooting took place in the cabin. The dentist said he was in the bathroom. He claimed that his wife was putting the shotgun away and that she accidentally shot herself in the chest. What, what do you make of this, Danny? Well, I, he's been convicted of it, so um, <laughs> yes. I, I would say there's plenty of evidence to, to substantiate that, that he did do it. There's, there's several things that came to mind, you know, when I read the, uh, the summary of the case that were we're real telling. And, and the one, of course, is he's had this affair for uh, 15 or 20 years. And, um, and apparently 
the person he was having the affair with, a, a coworker, had given him an ultimatum, and which is not unusual in those types of situations. She's like, okay, I'm tired of waiting. You know, you've got a year to divorce her and uh, sell the business and we can live happily ever after or I'm out of here. So he apparently had uh, about four or five million dollars worth of insurance on his wife of 40 years and decided that he would uh, take her out and collect the insurance and he and his, uh, his mistress would live happily ever after. Or at least that was the plan, apparently. Danny, what I find interesting before we get into the details of the case is that he was convicted of a murder in a foreign country. The uh, case was heard here in the United States, and there is a special charge of killing someone overseas. And that is what he was charged with and, and found guilty of. But what's interesting is how long this took and the fact that because, and we're g- going to get into this, that the um, government officials and investigators in Zambia came up with a completely different opinion of what happened in that cabin. Uh, it's interesting how they had to recreate things really without a lot of evidence, meaning forensic evidence. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's always a tough tough thing to do, um, and and truthfully, it's mostly a circumstantial case. And what I mean by that, as you as you pointed out, you know, the the gun had been destroyed, uh, clothing I'm sure was destroyed or or unavailable. There's there's things that that, that you would want uh, in a case like that because you can determine distance for the gunshot and and things of that nature. But uh, those things those things were unavailable. The authorities there did a few things that helped. Uh, they did test the weapon before it was no longer available to see that it didn't misfire, um, basically dropping it from, I think it was a couple of feet uh, from the ground to make sure they did just fire upon uh, impact. And um, so they, they, they at least eliminated that, uh, but they essentially just took his word for it, you know, that he said, hey, it was an accidental and this is what happened. Well, your circumstantial case comes into, into play when you look at it like, you know, okay, well, first off, um, it's very difficult for someone to accidentally shoot themselves in the chest with a shotgun. And in fact, I, I had one person commit suicide with a shotgun and they had to configure a uh, yardstick Actually, they used two yardsticks, believe it or not, and a, and a pencil in between to activate the trigger. And this was a, a man. So for a woman to shoot herself in the chest with a shotgun is, is a very uh, a difficult thing to do, you know, unless you somehow use some type of, of thing to assist, which wasn't the case or didn't appear to be the case in this. So there's, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that, that she could not have done this. It wasn't an accident. And then you have all of the circumstantial evidence showing that that he had a motive to kill her. It's a case that has fascinated um, people around the world just because of, wow, that's kind of suspicious that, you know, it's made so many headlines. It's taken so long to bring this case and then finally to trial in July. So as we said, Dr. Rudolph claims that he was in the bathroom while Bianca was putting the shotgun away. Police in Zambia ruled it an accident which made it possible for Dr. Rudolph to then go after the $4.8 million in life insurance benefits, which he had recently bumped up. He had always had several policies, but in the year of her death, some changes were made to augment the payoff. Always very suspicious for all of us. So the other thing is, of course, you know, he had this long-time mistress. It wasn't a new affair, but according to friends and family and prosecutors now, he had been having an affair with this woman for 15 to 20 years, and she basically managed his dental office. So back to Zambia, he quickly cremates his wife, Bianca. He said, and this is the beauty of it, which I think also raised more suspicion. He said, because the challenges of trying to transport her body back to the United States were just too difficult. But the FBI and counselor officials said, but hold on a second, you're a big game hunter. You're a hunter. You have transported 
animals much bigger than this back to the United States as your trophies. So we got a problem believing this. And, um, you know, I'm just going to say this because many of you are just going to just explode on YouTube about this, about the idea of going somewhere to hunt animals for the pure sport of hunting them. Just going to say it. I find it foul. Freedom to do so. Just got to put it out there because I know you all are like, what? <laughs> um, okay, back to this. So he quickly cremates his wife and, you know, he has to, the Zambian officials have to contact and also Dr. Rudolph has to contact the U.S. Embassy or the uh, consular office there, the consulate, because you have now a an American who has died overseas. And there's a whole procedure for all of this, which is kind of where some evidence, but not a lot, was gathered in this short period of time before Bianca was cremated. Okay, so um, I do want to talk a little bit about their relationship and how long they'd been together. And then I kind of want to go back to the crime scene, if if y'all can follow me this way, because I think it's important to understand these things. So Bianca and Lawrence met at the University of Pittsburgh. She was working on an undergraduate degree. He was in dental school. The couple married in 1982. Lawrence established a dental practice in Pennsylvania, which Bianca worked at in the beginning. Bianca and Lawrence were avid and experienced hunters, and they traveled the world. This is what's important here, because... We're talking about an allegation that he made that it was an accident, but she's an experienced hunter and she is comfortable and experienced with these larger weapons, correct? Yeah, she's even gone on her own uh, safaris apparently without him. So she's that competent. And the, the hunting guide, uh, he, he said also that she was very competent uh, with her handling of firearms. Yeah. And that's really important. Really, really important. So about four years, this is when things start to get interesting. About four years before Bianca's death, the Rudolphs moved to Arizona from Pennsylvania. But here's what's so weird. He kept his dental practice in Pennsylvania there, and he flew back and forth. That is not an easy commute. And honestly, if you're a dentist or any kind of doctor, it's kind of odd. Ah! Unless, of course, you have another life. (laughs) Let's move my wife out of the way. You, my dear, are going to Arizona. I will keep flying back to Pennsylvania because I have to work and sustain us. Right. (sighs) The tangled webs that these people weave. Okay. So in 2016, the Rudolphs traveled to Zambia multiple times. Multiple times they'd been there on hunting trips. The final trip to Zambia was scheduled to occur between September 27th and October 11th of 2016. The Rudolphs brought with them a Remington 357 rifle and a Browning 12-gauge shotgun. The goal of the trip reportedly was for Bianca to kill a leopard. On this trip, she was unsuccessful in her pursuit of getting that leopard, um, but According to, according to the affidavit, did kill some other animals. Okay, so now I don't know why this is so important, but it's in the affidavit that the couple had only one leopard hunting permit and that was only for Bianca. Why is that significant, Danny? Well, I believe it's probably significant because uh, if they had a rifle and a shotgun and it, it's, it was said that, that he, Lawrence, carried the shotgun, And that makes sense because if she's the one that's going to harvest an animal, she's going to use that rifle. The shotgun is brought along for self-defense. And and I I use that term lightly, but it's used in defense of themselves if they were to be attacked by an animal. I mean, in Africa, you have the the hunting there can be extremely dangerous because these these animals, uh, there's some animals that are very, very aggressive and uh, you could become the prey rather than the predator. So a shotgun would be used in a uh, quick reaction type of defensive uh, position. So he carried the shotgun. He carried the shotgun, which means he would have been responsible for loading and unloading the shotgun. And in fact, uh, I believe I, I read in there that he had unloaded the shotgun and cleaned it the night before they left. So the shotgun should have been unloaded. And hmm. um, if it wasn't, 
if it wasn't, then then the uh, the prosecution, I'm, I'm sure, would would say that clearly he would have loaded it. She would not have. So um, the shotgun, as you said, was carried by Lawrence. And, you know, I've been on safari in South Africa, not on a hunting trip at all, but you are correct. Um, You have to be very careful and you have a guide and both your guide and then the the tracker, they both are armed because obviously you're in the wild and these are wild animals. That's another reason why children are not allowed on safari because animals see them as prey because they're small and they will attack the Jeep if they see anyone under a certain size. Um, there are a lot of guidelines just to, you know, for a simple safari that, you know, you're not trying to harm any animals in this process. Okay. So on October 11th of 2016 at around 530 in the morning, Bianca Rudolph is shot in the chest with the Browning shotgun while the couple was packing to leave their hunting camp. The guide and a game scout arrived at the cabin. They heard the gunshot. They find Bianca on the floor. She's bleeding from the chest while Lawrence is shouting for help. The hunting guide gave Lawrence a medical kit, but Lawrence was unable to stop the bleeding. He apparently also tried CPR. Hello, shot in the chest. Good luck with a Band-Aid. Lawrence reportedly told local police that he suspected... Lawrence, he suspected the shotgun was still loaded from the previous day and that Bianca had likely discharged the weapon accidentally while trying to put the shotgun in its zippered gun case. The shotgun was found in the partially zippered case next to Bianca's body. That's according to the federal affidavit. How is that even physically possible if she was shot? If she shot herself? How? It, it doesn't make any sense because, I mean, anyone that's ever put a rifle or a shotgun into a zipper case, the muzzle goes in first. And and any anyone with any experience of handling firearms at all would never try to, to put a gun into a case in any other fashion. So that's one problem. And then, you know, like I said, the, the guide uh, testified that Lawrence had cleaned the shotgun the night before. So it shouldn't have been loaded and she wouldn't have been the one that would load it. And it would, it would make more sense that when he finished cleaning it the night before with the early morning departure, that that gun would have already been put into the case and secured and ready to go for the next, you know, for the morning uh, commute. Right. I mean, anyone who travels and packs pretty much, if you're leaving that early, you pretty much get everything together except for your toiletries, sure. the, you know, your change of clothes, your pajamas, and then you're set. Everything's done in most of your bags, unless you're a last minute packer. But I doubt that. Not at 530 in the morning. You know, I, I, I believe, and I say this all the time on the podcast, that crime, you know, we're dealing with humans and how they react. And I always say, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not logical, that to me is always a red flag. Yes, people are different. I get that. But there's just some things that always make you go, hmm, hold on a second. And that's one of those. Right. Plus what you just said. If you are putting this into the zippered case, it would have been completely backwards, right? Yeah, and, and I would argue that even a person who's never ha- ha- handled a firearm before if you gave them a shotgun and said put it in this case i mean it goes back to you know your toddler days of putting squares in in square holes you know it it's you see the shape it's a it's easy assessment that the muzzle would go in first and then you zip it up and you know i i don't i can't imagine anyone putting it in backwards and um interestingly the fbi did a, a study you know i don't know how much value it had during trial but they took the same exact shotgun and uh, had 25 women handle the shotgun and put it in a case. And not none of them tried to put it in backwards. All of them just naturally put it in the way it would be put in, which means muzzle first, it wouldn't be pointed at your chest. And then I guess the second part of the test was, could any of them actually get the muzzle somehow configured toward their chest and reach the trigger? And none of them could. So yeah, lots, lots of holes in his story. Yeah. And what you this experiment that you're talking about is not a traditional um, forensic uh, examination that can really hold up in court. It was used as I think they refer to it as a study 
an experiment, but they had huge limitations on how it could be used in court because right. you you can't argue definitively this was the gun, this is what happened because so much information is missing from what happened inside that cabin. I thought that was really interesting. I thought to myself, wow, how in the world did the jury process that information? Because it's almost anecdotal, really. Yeah, and I'm sure that I'm sure that if that uh, was admitted as evidence, which I don't know, I don't know if it was. I, I, I'm I'm aware that the study occurred. I don't know if that if the uh, evidence of that study was allowed into the trial, but if it was, I'm sure it came with a pretty stern ad, admonition from the um, uh, the judge about you know the weight of that type of evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, Zambian officials did do some ballistics. Uh, they stated that they did, like you mentioned, the drop test and that from one and a half meters onto the cement and stated that the gun, the actual gun, did not misfire during their tests, which is important because, as you said, they wanted to rule out that there was something wrong with a malfunction. Correct. A malfunction. And so uh, they returned the gun back to Lawrence Rudolph. The investigation by the Zambians concluded that, quote, normal safety precautions at the time of packing the firearm were not taken into consideration, causing the firearm to accidentally fire. So now you have an official ruling from the police agency in Zambia saying, this is an accident. And that makes it possible to collect the life insurance policies, which he did. Yeah, I mean, essentially, like I said, they took his word for it, um, you know, and I don't know what type of training and, and what level of experience the uh, investigators would have there. But but clearly they looked at this like, well, how, how do we prove otherwise? I mean, it's a yeah. he said and he said only. I mean, there's no other no other uh, way to, to look at it other than physical evidence. And perhaps they don't have. You know the uh, training and experience to to look at the physical evidence and, and for instance you know to determine the the distance of the muzzle from the gunshot wound here's something else that's really fascinating according to all of the reporting that was done there and then gathered by the fbi um bianca's body was moved after she died, she was covered with a blanket, and then the shotgun was moved away from the body by the game scout there uh, at the lodge for, quote, safety reasons. So the crime scene has already been tampered with by this point. By the time any Zambian officials get in there to photograph or do anything, it's already been tampered with. She's been yeah, covered. It's been, it's been moved. Done. Right? Yeah. And, and so the, the, the damage to the integrity of the forensics, it, it's, it's already been tainted. Okay, so let's keep moving here. So on the evening of October 11th, Lawrence contacted the U.S. Embassy and then told the consular chief that his wife had died in an accidental um, you know, gunshot accident. Um, according to the consular chief, Lawrence quickly turned the conversation over to cremating Bianca's body and then leaving the country. He wants to get out of there. Now that's yeah. kind of normal wanting to get out of there. I don't know about the cremation, but wanting to get the hell out of Dodge and get home makes sense. Against her will, actually. Um, that was another part of it is that her friends and family testified that she did not want to be cremated and made that clear. Yeah, she was a, a, a devout Catholic and uh, did not believe in cremation. And there have been, you know, some changes within the, the Catholic faith trying to open the door more to cremation. But that's, I mean, when my mother died, I had to argue with our parish priest over her wishes to be cremated. He actually argued with me, the grieving daughter. All right. <laughs> I'm like, really? Father? Right. Um, so that is indeed very possible that that was against her wish. Two days later on October 13th. So two days after Bianca's death, 
The embassy counselor chief was informed that Bianca's body was about to be cremated the next day. So he got very worried because he thought, "Mm, this is moving too fast. I need to get out there. I need to contact the FBI. Not that they would have jurisdiction there, but I, I need to talk to, you know, a law enforcement agency about this. So the counselor chief traveled to the funeral home where her body was. Um, along with two others from the embassy, and he wanted to take photographs of her body before she was cremated. Now, the consular chief said that he was somewhat familiar with firearms because he had a military background and said that when he looked at Bianca's body and the injuries, it just was not consistent with a contact wound, meaning that if she had been shot Danny, I'll let you explain this. If she had been shot so closely while handling uh, the the shotgun, the wounds would have looked entirely different. Yeah, there's there's ways to determine the distance in a in a contact wound, especially the shotgun, but in, any firearm. Um, basically, everything that's coming out of that muzzle is going directly into the body. So the gases that that are inserted into the body, um, they they expand inside, and, and they do different things that are that are pretty easy to see um if if the if the muzzle's just a few inches from the body you're going to have burning and and uh tattooing and what we call stippling around the wound and that's basically the burning particles that are coming out of the the muzzle are going to actually tattoo the body and, and they can't be washed off you know this is something that's that's going to be there up until a body is cremated you know that evidence would have been there if 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 the body was brought home, and and you know a, a medical examiner, you know washed 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 her up and and examined her, the evidence of the distance would still be there. The absence of any tattooing, stippling, uh, burning, any of that, puts that muzzle at least three feet away, several feet away. And with the shotgun, I would think that the pattern also could help determine uh, the distance. Because, you know, the shot pellets expand into a, a pattern and, and the, the farther out you are, the more it expands. So there's there's a lot that could have been determined with a proper investigation. However, uh, I think the photographs alone that, that that he was able to take probably saved the case and, and helped them uh, successfully prosecute. So those would have been strong evidence and that there wouldn't have been much disputing there. I mean, obviously the defense can dispute every piece of evidence, but you believe that that was very strong evidence. Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's a scientific standard. So uh, any expert, you know, in the, in the nation, in the world can testify to that. So on October 14th, this would be three days after Bianca's death, Lawrence authorized and paid for the cremation. At the time of the cremation, Lawrence declined to notify any family stating that he wanted to personally inform members of the family of Bianca's death. I don't know. Let me get back to logic again. First thing I would do, I'd be on the phone to the entire family. Oh my God, this just happened. Why would I wait if something this horrific happened? You know, if I call my family when um, a smaller crisis happens, why would I not call them here? Yeah, not logical. Most, no, most people, they would not wait. They, they would be immediate notifications. Absolutely, because you're going to need help. What am I going to do? La, la, you know, all this, right? Everything. I just don't understand why you would wait to contact family and friends. It just makes no sense. He also allegedly made false claims about the shotgun that killed Bianca, claiming not to know the maker model of the firearm, describing it as an antique. Who in their right mind goes out with an antique weapon? Yeah, and I think there was information that that, that shotgun actually was recently purchased. So, I mean, it, that that wouldn't make any sense at all. He'd know what he bought. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously it wouldn't be an antique. I mean, unless he bought it, you know, at an antique store or bought it used or whatever. But right. you know, it, it, it didn't, it didn't, it was just another hole in his story. Mm-hmm. And this, again, back to logic, common sense. He reportedly asked the counselor staff who would have access to the information about the Zambian investigation 
I, was he asking because insurance companies would want to do that, which I've done a bunch of investigations about um, fake deaths in particular overseas right. and how insurance companies have teams of investigators around the world and, and they're experts and they deploy them to try and figure out what the heck happened. Did that person really disappear under a waterfall? Right. Um, so I'm, you know, it's, it's possible that's where he was going. I have no idea. So friends thought it was very strange that she was cremated, didn't like this idea. In fact, when police here in the United States start interviewing her family and friends, things become a lot clearer. Now it's revealed that the dentist had had this long-term affair. They interviewed an employee who used to work uh, there at the practice and said, gosh, they've been having an affair for like 15 or 20 years and everybody knows about it. And that's where the nugget of information that, that you shared about this ultimatum, you either leave her and sell the practice or we're done. Right. So that's very important. Then a friend of the Rudolphs actually contacted the FBI uh, later in October and they said, please, we want you to investigate Bianca's death. We don't believe that this was an accident because first she was rather skilled with handling weapons and because of the extramarital affair, they also knew that that was an issue and Here's the other thing. This friend described Lawrence as being verbally abusive and claimed that the couple had been fighting a lot about money, a lot of issues about money. And this friend stated right. that, quote, Larry is never going to divorce her because he doesn't want to lose his money. And she's never going to give him a divorce because she's Catholic. Possible. They've been married a right. really long time. 40 and years. Yes, she would be entitled to, to a lot. Here's, I say this practically every week. People, divorce, no matter how difficult, is still easier than taking someone else's life. And then not only have you taken that life away, harmed all these innocent people, family members and, and, and friends, but on top of it, you're worse off than if you had divorced the person because you're <laughs> in prison for the rest of your life. No, it's amazing. I, and, you know, like, like you mentioned, case that you and I met on, you know, it was a child. It's like, you know, there's people to, to get to the point where they believe that murder is a solution. Um, it's, it's mind boggling. It truly is. Yes, that was such a horrible case. Horrible case. So within three weeks of the wife's passing, Lawrence begins filing claims for the insurance policies. The earliest of these policies was purchased in 1987. Like I said, he had had multiple insurance policies and maybe that wouldn't have looked suspicious, but the fact that he um, increased the value of some of them in the year that she died, that does make people suspicious. So he right. received almost $4.9 million in life insurance claims, $4.9 million. So let's fast forward now to 2020 and a nasty argument between the lovers at a steakhouse in the Phoenix area. So Bianca's been dead for four years. And this is a conversation that was allegedly overheard between Dr. Rudolph and the woman who he's been having an affair with for the last 15 to 20 years, Lori Milleron. Okay. He is reportedly overheard saying this to Lori, quote, I killed my effing wife for you. They were apparently stressing over the fact that the FBI was intensifying its investigation and had been circling and stressing them out. I, of course, you know, I'm suspicious of everything. I find this a little too neatly tied with a bow that someone overheard this. It's just a little too perfect. Oh boy, I don't know. That's interesting, and I, um, I believe it. I, you know, who would fabricate that, and why would they fabricate that? It, it's, you know, why would they insert themselves into something and, and risk being uh, held for perjury or charged with perjury? I don't know. I, I don't know. I I agree. It's just it's so perfect. It's so simple. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, look at this. It's 2020. The FBI is all over them. 
And here they are in a public area and someone hears him say something so incredibly incriminating. I killed my effing wife for you. Yeah, but you have to understand, I mean, the stressors that that had been put on by the FBI and that's it's it's a pretty um, normal thing, like especially with unsolved cases, uh, you you stimulate activity because people can't live with that guilt. I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount of guilt, unless you're a sociopath that if you've murdered someone, especially a loved one, that's always welling up inside of you. And so you push buttons to, to get them off kilter. I mean, it's it's not much different than, uh, you know, the the the, the way that, that you'll make a, a bad mistake, let's say a, a, in a poker game, you know, you, you do a, a dumb thing that you think, geez, if I'd only been able to calm down and think that through, I wouldn't have pushed all my chips in. But at the moment, you know, you're stressed out. You've got too many things coming from too many different directions and you and you make a hasty move. Well, if the FBI are, are knocking on his door constantly, interviewing every single person he knows, interviewing everyone she knows, and I'm sure that they were, then then those two are going to start, uh, you know, having problems between each other. And, you know, I, I doubt if he yelled at the restaurant, but maybe he just said it loud enough that someone in the next booth thought, oh, my God. You know, I'd like to know more about who that person was that overheard it and how uh, that information came forward. Like, did that person know the dentist and think, oh, my gosh, that's him? Or, or was it because of media attention that they, they knew you know, about the case? But it would be very interesting to know more about that uh, that statement. But, yeah, I don't I don't know. I I took it at face value. I didn't mm-hmm. doubt it. Or, or maybe the FBI was at the booth next door having a stake, too. Yeah, they. That could be. That could be. Look, I get it. It it all fits in. And I definitely understand what you're saying about the stress, that that could certainly push them and people start making mistakes and saying stupid things. It, It makes perfect sense. I just thought like, wow, this one is completely wrapped in a bow and just gifted to prosecutors. Well, you you know, know, when something is too perfect. Here's a thought on that too. And we don't, from what I read, it said that a conversation was overheard. It didn't say a person overheard a conversation. So perhaps this was on a wiretap. Perhaps they they had the table bugged, you know, that that somehow they knew that they were going to this meeting, um, uh, you know, or to this restaurant and they they arranged it to where there would be a recording. Uh, I would imagine that that they probably had the the phones bugged. Um, You can get wiretap uh, warrants on on capital cases so it's very likely that they were listening to their conversations on telephones and and um they could have even you know had a recording in a public place well an arrest warrant was finally issued for lawrence on december 22nd of 2021 so about a year after the restaurant he was indicted in colorado in january of 2022, the indictment was served there because of the location of the companies involved in the life insurance payouts. It's very interesting. Uh, We talk about jurisdiction. It it has sometimes all sorts of uh, issues that affect a case. So it's interesting that this is how they made this determination. That's how we ended up in Colorado. Yeah, it is. I mean, the feds have a lot more leeway in, in you know, jurisdictional things. But, uh, yeah, one could argue, you know, maybe the, the conspiracy to commit this murder started in Arizona or maybe it started in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, the, the companies that were defrauded are in Colorado. I, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts to that. And like I said, that, you know, because it's federal indict indictment, you know, they've got a lot of leeway as to where they try the case and, and how they do that. So now let's move to the trial phase. It was a three-week murder trial in July of 2022, just last month. Lawrence took the stand in his own defense. Always a tricky move. Sometimes it really, we've seen it work on behalf of defendants more often than not. It doesn't if they can't answer the questions 
that makes sense to the jury, a lot of times it opens the door to all sorts of other questioning. So he testified for two hours and he told the jury, quote, I did not kill my wife. I could not murder my wife. I would not murder my wife. And he added that he did not murder his wife for insurance money. And it wasn't to be with Lori or anybody else. He also claimed that the two were in an open relationship and were by all accounts happy. Possible. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm sure that the prosecution brought in uh, witnesses to, to, uh, basically uh go against everything that he said in that statement you know um especially the open open relationship type thing but um you know that that's the thing i mean at some point if they feel like the the evidence is overwhelming you know they they take that that chance and say well i can convince them that i didn't do this you know which kind of puts them in a narcissistic personality type in my opinion but that's what they do they they believe that that jury is going to just fall in love with them and, and not convict them. And clearly the jury saw through it. So after a day and a half of deliberations on Monday of this week, on August 1st, a federal court found Lawrence guilty of murdering Bianca Rudolph. The actual charge is guilty of murder of a U.S. national in a foreign country and also guilty of mail fraud. That would be in connection with defrauding multiple insurance companies. Lori Milleron was found guilty of accessory after the fact, obstruction of justice, and two counts of perjury. Milleron was found not guilty on three additional counts of perjury. Lawrence Rudolph still maintains his innocence. His attorneys have stated that they will appeal the conviction, and his two grown children have signed affidavits saying that they believe their father is innocent. He will be sentenced in February of 2023, and he could face life in prison on this murder charge. Our next case is out of New York and involves another doctor accused of doing horrific things. A neurologist has been found guilty of sexually assaulting his patients. I find this case so despicable. You know, no one died here, but I really wanted to cover this case and share it with you because, again, it's despicable and it's about time this man was held accountable. What infuriates me is that he was not called on this sooner. Supposedly, his... His horrific actions went on for years, for years, and people complained. Last week, on July 29th of 2022, a New York jury found Dr. Ricardo Cruciani guilty on 12 counts of predatory sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape, and other related crimes. Prosecutors say that the 68-year-old disgraced neurologist offered high amounts of pain medication after over-prescribing to the point of forcing them into addiction. Then, when his patients would ask for refills, he would demand sexual acts or he would cut them off. He set them up, he made them dependent, he made them addicts, and then he sexually abused them. I find him disgusting. I find him disgusting, disgusting. These reports of abuse date back more than 15 years, and according to victims, administrators at several hospitals allegedly, allegedly ignored these reports of misconduct against Dr. Ricardo Cruciani. I'm furious about this, Danny. Yeah, I mean, I can't really add any passion to what you just said. I, I'm with you 100%. Um, but clearly, he has these people hooked, and, and you know, we all know that, that there's a, a big problem in this country with with you know, the, the pain meds that are available now, the, uh, you know, oxycodone and, and things of that nature that are, that are very, very addictive. And, um, and, and of course the, the interesting thing here is he's basically doing what pimps do to runaways, you know, get, get you addicted to drugs and you rely on that person to keep supplying you and, and keep you happy and you'll do anything for those drugs. So, yeah. It's it's it is it's it's disgusting. It's uh, tragic, and um, I hope he enjoys his time in prison. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We've heard of a lot of cases where doctors were prescribing and over-prescribing for money that they were doing it as a business. Obviously, the consequences are the same. The people become addicted, 
and are, you know, in many ways permanently harmed by these addictions. What is different with this person is that instead of doing it for the money, he is doing it to sexually assault them. So these victims are being traumatized two times. Once by an intentional addiction that supported and inflicted upon them by a doctor. And then secondly, the sexual assault. So that's why I find him even more despicable than a doctor who does this for money. I just, because this is so vicious and so violent. Yeah, so, he's a sexual predator. I mean, that's, yes. that's what it boils down to. He is a sexual predator and, and uh, he just has a, a very unique um, uh, method that he uses uh, because of his position. And, and that actually makes it even that much more disgusting. And if you think about it, his position as a doctor, it's, you know, he's, he's supposed to be a person that, that we trust. They, you know, you walk in and you trust them with your life. It's, it's sort of like when a police officer commits heinous crimes, you know, it's, it's that much worse because uh, you had that position of trust and, and uh, you violated that. Ricardo Cruciani was at the time a respected neurologist specializing in pain management. He operated offices throughout the Northeast. He didn't have a small operation. He had offices in Manhattan, Hopeful, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. According to federal prosecutors, Cruciani abused women over the time period of 2002 to 2017. This is of what they know, of what they know. In his indictment, federal prosecutors alleged that Cruciani had a process for sexually abusing his patients that first started with prescribing the pain medicine way too much than they needed for their problem to get them quickly addicted. And then he would kind of force his patients to rely on him, to trust him. And then he would become more abusive. Like what he would do is he would like, he would call them how are you doing? He would do things that made it seem like he cared about you, like maybe putting a hand on you in a more innocent manner and and maybe patting your head. Do you know what I'm saying? He would start it this way. It's like, oh, what a wonderful and affectionate man who cares about me. But no, no, no. Then he would start meeting with his patients, not just alone in examining rooms, but in his private office, in hospital rooms, hotels, apartments, outside of medical offices. You could see how this would progress. He would use these one-on-one interactions to truly develop that trust with the victims. So it would confuse them. And then if you're medicated, I'm going to argue you are going to be that much more confused about what's going on around you. Certainly more vulnerable. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So he would try and comfort them and their pains when they were having issues with their addiction and their withdrawal. But then he would start um, with the sexual demands. Uh, he, He just... I mean, it was everything from sexual assault to he would be, I read in the court records that he would masturbate and then force the the patient to finish. Horrible. I mean, it's just horrible what this man did. Okay, so let's get back to uh, the federal indictment and let's get back to some of the charges against him because apparently this was not the first time. The earliest documented victim in the federal indictment became a patient in 2002 or 2003. The victim suffered from severe chronic pain, was prescribed opioids and other medications. Um, So she went to see him regularly and then it became impossible. Um, He, the sexual demands were so much and she didn't want to be his patient anymore. So she tried to get her medical records so she could see another doctor. He refused. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not giving you your medical records. You're screwed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Many victims reported that they were then enticed to travel to his different locations in offices in other states. Dr. Ricardo Cruciani pleaded guilty in a Philadelphia court on November 21st of 2017. This was a misdemeanor charge related to groping women in a Philadelphia clinic. He admitted to groping seven patients in 2016 while he was serving as chairman of Drexel University's neurology department. Despicable. 
He also pleaded guilty to charges of indecent assault and harassment. Now, as part of this deal, the doctor got a sweet deal, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He didn't have to spend any time in prison. Instead, he was sentenced to seven years of probation, forced to forfeit his medical license, and then register as a low-level sex offender because the charges were lesser sexual charges on on those series of incidents. Which is really interesting. Um, You know, I hate to once again, you know, compare the the medical profession to law enforcement, but uh, if a a cop, you know, asks for a sexual favor to get out of, you know, so that the the driver can get out of a ticket or whatever, um, they actually consider that rape. It's considered rape under the color of authority, meaning, you know, that, that because of your position, as a peace officer, that you have this this authority that's given to you, and that that the person is is compelled. So they call it rape, and that's what this should be called. This this physician uh, should be considered a rapist, a sexual predator, and he should have felony counts stacked against him. It's it's just unfortunate that yeah. you know he was able to pretty much slide out with with not much. Not much in that Philadelphia case. So now we move to New York. And in February of 2018, Cruciani was arrested for the alleged rape of a former patient in New York City. This former patient, her name has been used already, and she consented to interviews with the New York Times. Her name is Hillary Tulin. She's 45 years old. Well, she called a sexual abuse hotline to report him that she said she had been abused by this man from 2005 until 2012. And um, Tulin confessed that she felt that she had no choice but to keep seeing him because he was one of the few doctors who would treat her condition. And so Cruciani gets arrested and then he posts million dollar bail. Clearly whatever happened in Philadelphia didn't impact him financially. So this case, the charges that he was just convicted of stem from her complaint along with um, the complaints of other women, a total of six women that he treated in 2012. Hillary Tolan uh, told the New York Times that even with all the trauma counseling and the therapy that she has received over the years, she said, quote, I don't think it was until I got this verdict that I could finally say I can start healing. Cruciani will be sentenced on September 14th of 2022 and could potentially spend the rest of his life in prison. His attorneys say they plan to appeal. I hope he spends the rest of his life in prison. And we're not done with him. Cruciani still faces federal charges, which allege his abuse of multiple patients in the offices in New York, Philadelphia, and New Jersey because he forced them to cross state lines. So we're not done with him yet. I hope that man never gets out. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible. And again, he's a predator. He, he needs to be locked up, clearly. I mean, how many lives did he run, you know? Just destroy people. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on our social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike, with what y'all are talking about. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Danny, great to see you. Great to see you. All right, so we have an interesting one. This week, we have a robbery with a botched getaway that must have been like a very heavy haul. So uh, this case comes out of Providence, Rhode Island, and a 30-year-old man was taken into custody after he allegedly took part in an armed robbery at a strip club where he used to work. Now, he's accused of stealing $25,000 in $1 bills. I don't know exactly how big that is, but I, I, I can't imagine that like the due to the nature of the bills that it's very compact. Uh, So how this kind of came together is Providence police reportedly told sources that the gentleman's club Cadillac Lounge was robbed before it opened. Now, the owner told a news source the suspect allegedly forced an employee to open the safe and then stole twenty two thousand dollars in one dollar bills from the safe. Uh, And then after this, the suspect reportedly jumped the fence and ran towards an Amtrak train track and Providence police. Police searched the area with canine dogs and other investigators, uh, which is where they were able to apprehend the sus- 
the suspect. Now, according to a news source, the Cadillac Lounge manager, Ed Imondi, was holding about $3,500 in cash at the time of the robbery, which the robber also stole as well. So that gets into that $25,000 number. So Imondi said he thought initially that the robbery was a joke at first because he was just sitting in his office counting money when the suspect came in with a gun. So Imondi said uh, that the, the suspect told him this is a robbery. And Imondi replied, what? And, and the suspect then said, I'm going to rob the place. Uh, and then Amandi also added that he took all the ones. He could hear them stacking them into a big bag that the suspect had. So Amandi and the Cadillac Lounge owner, Dick Shappy, rep- reportedly uh, thought that the suspected robbery was an inside job because the person who robbed the strip club allegedly knew which safe contained the most money. Uh, now, Providence police arrested the suspect, Jonte Good, on a first degree robbery charge. Now, it's kind of interesting the way this guy uh, disguised himself. He wore a Halloween mask that actually like it was like neck to the back of the neck, covering the whole thing, wore a, a, a face mask over that. He had a hat and glasses on as well, um, but they were still able to apprehend him. Uh, he's now being held without bail. Uh, investigators were reportedly able to recover about $20,000 of the 25000 that was stolen. So no real word yet on what happened to the other $5,000. I'm sure more will come out as this case develops. Uh, but people had a lot to say about this one. Uh, Gunman said, my guy stole 25,000 times, which I don't know if it's different in ones. I'm, I, you know, I'm not a law enforcement professional, but it seems like a, an odd way to get to $25,000. I'm guessing that the guy was hoping that the bills would have less likelihood of being traced or maybe accounted for. I don't know what would go into the decision to go with. I've heard of small bills before, but the smallest of bills I have not heard of in a robbery. Um, uh, a lot of people had some some comments about the, the bills coming from a strip club. Jana S. said, you know, his woman at home knew exactly where he was hanging out. Would he and the dollar bills came home covered in glitter? Uh, <laughs> not really <laughs> sure. Not really sure the status of what these bills looked like. But uh, uh, Efren A. said the glitter turned him in, um, which uh, unclear, uh, but I feel like it would be pretty telling if you were uh, fleeing from a strip club and there was any trace of glitter uh, that the police probably had the right guy. Kevin M said he was going to a higher end strip club and needed 25 grand in dollar bills to celebrate with champagne incognito customer. Uh, And then spicy said, Oh, so that's where my tips went which I, I love the username spicy. Uh, it's a, it's a great one. Uh, but that is going to do it for today's comment section. As always, uh, if you would like a chance to get your comment featured on the show, go ahead and leave those over on our YouTube community page. You can also leave them over on Facebook and Instagram. We mentioned it last episode, but we are trying to get to 5 million subscribers on YouTube. Help us get there. And we're hoping to have one of our viewers featured on the show to discuss us a case uh so yeah tell your friends subscribe to the channel check us out oh that'll be so much fun now i do have a comment here yes yes and it was actually suggested by one of our fans on youtube so i you know I do read your comments. I really listen to 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 what you all um, care about. But I have a comment on on the strip club. The fact that he had twenty five thousand and ones. This is what has me upset. Those dollar bills. Those dollar bills were meant for the strippers, right? Those are tips. I am pissed off that the club had the twenty five thousand dollars in dollar bills. They belong to the girls. That's my opinion. Yeah, I like I don't really know standing the, up for the women. <laughs> absolutely. Well, like I don't really know the <laughs> method there, but but I agree with you. I don't know why this money, which was clearly like intended as tips, was in the safe in the first place. But I mean, I guess the guy as a former employee, like knew knew whatever the situation was for for counting those tips. Yeah. I don't know if they try to tax them on it or, or, or what. I don't know. And hey, it's possible that that money was there when people asked, you know, I need change. I need change for bills, you know, to to give a tip to the dancer. But that's an awful lot of dollar bills to have on hand for change. So, again, I'm like, hmm, I'm suspicious. Do those dancers get to keep their tips? I want a further investigation. I think that's it. Well, and if they're tips, right, and this money was recovered, I, I, I don't know. I hope police don't end up holding on to it for too long if it, you know, if it was intended as, as gratuity. 
I don't know. Danny, any opinions? Uh, I will just say that this is outside my area of expertise. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> Thanks, <enough>. Will. <laughs> See you next week. See ya. Danny, it's been a pleasure as always having you on. Where can people find you, find out more about you, your books, everything? I have a feeling if they just like take a look at the screen, they could figure it out. But nonetheless, some people listen to us and do not watch Danny. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, murdermemo.com is, is my website. Uh, also, dickiefloydnovels.com. And uh, all my books are on Amazon. I have seven novels and then my memoir, which... Um, as you noted, is pictured here behind me that nothing left to prove uh, that came out in September. And that's the only nonfiction book I've written to date. But um, and it's doing really well. People people like it. And I, I think it gives some real heavy insight to uh, people about uh, the career of a law enforcement officer. Yeah. And for those of you who are regulars, you know, that Danny has shared that the reason he started writing is to deal with his PTSD from the horrific crimes that he was exposed to in, in dealing with survivors. And, and that kind of gave birth to your writing. And so for those of you who don't know Danny, you may find that very interesting. And that's why Nothing Left to Prove is such an important book. And I think that's probably why it's doing so well. You know what, Anna, I have a, a one chapter challenge. You can go onto Amazon and read the first, I think three chapters, but if you read the first chapter, which is very short, just a page and a half or two pages, uh, I think you'll want to read the book because it leaves you saying, oh, my God, what happened to this man? And, um, and and that's all I challenge people. Just go on to Amazon and read the first chapter free. Read the first two or three free if you want. But uh, I, I think you, a lot of people will want to read the book. Terrific. There you go. Anyone who wants to find out more about me or reach out to me on social media, I'm Anna G News, Anna with one N. I talk some crime and then sometimes it's all about silly things in life to get a little break from all this. And I want to thank all of you. Y'all were so sweet. Last week was such a horrible week for me because my little dog, Jackie O, who you all know, half the time barks, uh, was in the hospital. Um, it was pretty serious. She had a very serious kidney infection. Wasn't sure she was going to make it. And you all were so kind to me on social media. I'm very grateful for your kindness. I love this community of people. And um, yeah, so thank you. You can find this episode and all episodes of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're trying to get to 5 million so then we can do something fun and have some of our uh, regular listeners on with us. I think that'll be, we don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we think it'll be fun. Uh, sign up to get our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.